This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the best of Newt's World. Coming up, my interview with Governor Christy Noem. On this episode of Newt's World, we're going to have a chance to chat with, I think, one of the rising stars in the entire country and somebody who uh, you're going to hear a lot more from over the next few years. I first noticed her when she was a freshman in Congress, and every time I've watched her career, I've just been really impressed with how smart, how hardworking, how eager to learn, I think how courageous she's been. And that is Governor Kristi Noem of South Dakota. Her handling of the COVID-19 pandemic made her widely known, but the truth is she's been in politics for a good while. She's smart, she's savvy, and I think you're going to find that you both like her and that you look forward to following her as she leads on a variety of things. She combines multiple roles. She's a wife, a mother, a lifelong rancher, farmer, and small business owner. In 2010, after serving in the South Dakota legislature for several years, she was elected to serve as South Dakota's lone member of the U.S. House. During her time in Congress, in addition to many other successes, Governor Nome helped pass the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, which put $2,400 back in the pockets of the average South Dakota family. In 2018, she had a platform of protecting South Dakotans against tax increases, at government growth, federal intrusion, and government secrecy. And on that platform, she was elected as South Dakota's first ever female governor. In addition to her amazing political achievements, she often says that her greatest accomplishment is raising her three children along with her husband, Brian. So I'm pleased to welcome my guest, Governor Christine Elm. Thank you, Newt. I appreciate you having me with you today. And we'll enjoy talking about this country and what's special about it and a little bit of what I think we need to do in America to make sure that it is protected for our kids and our grandkids. You know, I mentioned earlier that Melissa and I saw you down at Mar-a-Lago. We listened to your talk and we thought, you know, it was really very, very impressive. 
And then recently, you and Dr. Ben Carson co-authored, I think, a very profound and important column, which we're going to post on our show page so people can read it and see just how deeply committed you are to America and to the American system. But before we get into politics and government, if you don't mind, tell me a little bit, you grew up on a ranch or did you grow up on a farm? As an Easterner, I will confess, I'm not sure the difference. Well, I actually grew up on kind of both. I live in South Dakota and always have. Farms are where you generally grow crops and ranches are where you raise cattle, horses, and livestock. So we did both of those growing up. And I would say, Newt, from the time I was five or six years old, I knew that that was the lifestyle I always wanted to have. I wanted to grow up and farm and ranch with my dad. He was really my best friend. So when I got out of high school, went to college, you know, that was my goal was to come back to the operation and work alongside him in our family business that had been in our family for generations. What changed everything was when I was going to college, my dad was killed in an accident on our farm. It was March 10th, and it was one of those years that we had fluctuating temperatures. He went into a grain bin to empty it out and fell through the crust of mold on the top, and the corn buried him. So it was tragic for us, and for me in particular, I ended up quitting college and coming back and taking over the operation, which was one of the larger farming operations in the state of South Dakota at the time. We were farming about 10,000 acres. The day he was killed, he had rented another 2,500 acres. He was a go-getter. We had a large cow-calf operation, raised quarter horses too, and you know it was a lot for a 22-year-old to take over running all those different businesses and having your dad gone. He was 49 years old at the time, and it was a little overwhelming. But we got hit with death taxes. Several months later, I got a bill in the mail from the IRS that said we owed death taxes. And I could not believe that the federal government had a law that when a family had a tragedy, that all of a sudden we owed the federal government hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And like most small businesses or farms and ranches at the time, we had land and machinery and cattle, but we didn't have any money in the bank. And I could not figure out how I was going to pay those taxes. So people ask how I got involved in government and politics. It was because of that. I decided that we needed more normal, everyday people running businesses to show up and be involved in our policy to really make it work for them to be successful. Even in your busy career now as governor, are you still running the farm? No. When I got elected to Congress, I got bought out of the operation. What happened was several years after my dad passed away, my older brother moved home from Oklahoma. My sister moved home from Georgia. My younger brother was in high school when my dad was killed, and so he had graduated. And then we farmed and ranched as a partnership for many, many years. I was the general manager, but our four families worked there together side by side every single day. So when I got elected to Congress, I'm the very first person in my family to ever get involved in politics. We just didn't really do that. And when I got elected, it was very strange, but I also decided that if I wasn't going to be on the operation every day, that I wouldn't be involved in the business anymore. So I still have equity and land, but my brothers bought me out of the actual operating business of the farming operation because I was obviously spending my time working on policy in D.C. But I still live on one of the ranches 
with my husband when we're not in peer with the state government, and it's still a huge part of our way of life. So do you think that your children will grow up wanting to live on a farm or a ranch? Oh, definitely. My oldest daughter is an appraiser. She owns her own company, but definitely we're still raising horses. We have buffalo. Because we still live on the ranch, we have some livestock. It's not very big right now, but my son-in-law grew up on a large cattle operation, and that's where our heart is. My other two children will come back to South Dakota, too. It's just a part of our way of life. And, of course, my brothers still being involved in farming. We're incredibly involved with them on a day-to-day basis, keeping that operation going and just helping them where we can. I have to ask, I can't resist. How many buffalo are you running? <laughs> oh, you'd, we only have a handful right now. In fact, I just bought them this year because I thought it'd be fun. My husband was surprised when I told him that evening that you're not going to believe what I did today, but I bought a few buffalo <laughs> and I want to start building our buffalo herd. When I was a kid, my dad had a buffalo herd and I loved it. And so in South Dakota, we have Custer State Park, which is the most beautiful state park, I believe, in the country. And we have one of the original bison herds in the nation that helped bring buffalo back from extinction. And so that's where I bought those buffalo from, was from the annual auction. The state park has enough buffalo that there have been a lot of movies made there at the park in order to have that sense of what a real buffalo herd looks like. Absolutely. And we have a roundup every fall that is the governor's buffalo roundup. And we bring them into the corrals. We have about 20,000 people that come and watch and participate in the roundup. And then we have an auction that we sell some breeding stock from, and then that gives us the revenue we need to maintain the herd each year. So it's very much a Western way of life. From the standpoint of the rancher, are buffalo different to run than cattle are? Incredibly. Yeah. You will never take the wildness and aggressiveness out of buffalo. They are much more unpredictable. They run faster than horses. So you have to have much more secure fencing and equipment to work with them. And you definitely do not get up close and friendly with your buffalo. There's a wonderful short video at Yellowstone at the Visitor's Center where they say, you have to remember that these are wild animals. And they show this tourist getting tossed by the buffalo. And they just say, we keep telling people, don't do this. Yes. Well, and I think people a lot of times think that they can go up and approach them because they look so peaceful. But they're extremely unpredictable animals, even if they're on a ranch and people would consider them a part of their business operation. You will never get a buffalo to be a pet of yours because they just have a natural Western wildness to them that is inbred. And I think in a way, if you come out of a life where you're dealing with the natural world, it teaches you some core lessons about reality that all too often city dwellers don't quite get. You just made a good point, which is you are kidding yourself if you think you're about to have a pet buffalo. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the consequence can be a disaster. Yeah, and for me, my kids and grandkids will always have livestock. They just will because of what it teaches them. They learn to be responsible for another living being. They learn that they have chores and work to do every single day. It also teaches them to be problem solvers. Some of our best memories as kids was rounding up cattle, working them, vaccinating them, training horses, trying to get inside their head. 
figure out what they are thinking and how we can get them to work with us and be a partnership. It's very much a way that I think I learned how to approach problems in life and to work with individuals is because of what I learned from growing up on a ranch and working with animals and livestock and being responsible. I never got to take a day off because they always needed to be fed and cared for, and it was my responsibility. So have you been able to take those kind of lessons and bring them into public service? I have, although it's interesting. I feel like I spend a lot of time talking about raising kids, too, just because one of the best gifts that my parents ever gave me was giving me impossible things to do. When we were kids, my dad never taught me to drive a semi. He just, when I was 12 years old, got it going down the road and jumped out the door and said, take it home and make your corners wide. You know, we drove ourselves to school when we were eight, nine years old, and it was several miles away. We had to work with cattle from the time we were young, and it was, you know, you go feed them, take care of those calves, and do it and figure it out. And it wasn't an option to come back to dad and say that you failed. He gave you a job, he expected you to finish it, and you had to figure it out. And I think that is one of the best gifts that they ever gave us as children, was giving us those impossible things to do because it caused us to figure out a way to get it done, solve the problem, but then also when we did accomplish it, it gave me confidence. It taught me that I can figure things out and that I can tackle things that seem very, very difficult and have the confidence to really take on even bigger challenges. So I do work a lot of that into public service, and I think I talk about it a lot, but we also implement it and show it even with working with my employees that we're not here to live in an instant gratification society. We're here to determine what decisions we can make that creates a stronger America, a stronger family, stronger people 20, 30 years from now. So I would never want to be guilty of making a decision that's beneficial for me as much as I would want to focus on what is the consequences of this decision 20 years from now. When you take that kind of a long view, that makes you different than most politicians. It does. And I think that some people that have been involved with me in my political life would say that that's probably been to my political detriment. (laughs) You know, I took on some fights that probably were not going to be the popular thing at that point in time. But I thought it was important because of the consequences of it. I was very reluctant to legalize hemp in the state of South Dakota and argued against it for quite some time because I can't enforce the difference between hemp and marijuana. And I can't tell the difference out there. My drug dogs can't, my law enforcement officers. And, you know, we had that debate for a long period of time and people would tell me, why is she against this? But it was because of the consequences and what it did to public safety and people that are out there on the street dealing with it. So there's just different things that I've tried to look at not just what politically works for today, but if we make this decision, how do I deal with it 5, 10, 15 years down the road, and what does it open the door to? It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. 
Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up as well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. In my new book, March the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms, including four consecutive balanced budgets. March to the Majority tells the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. Go to gingrich360.com book and order your copy now. Order it today at gingrich360.com book. You know, one of the things that you've done that has huge long-term consequence is you got right in the middle of the fight over the Keystone XL pipeline and the decisions of the Biden administration. Was that a big challenge or was it just so obvious to you that there was no alternative? Well, it's a big challenge because it's a little controversial here in South Dakota. I've got nine Native American tribes that are not in favor of the pipeline. They believe that it's not the right approach for moving our natural resources, which every data point disagrees with that. It is much better policy on protecting the environment. It's safer to move this oil through pipelines than it is over the roads and rail like we do today. It's much safer for our communities and people to move it through the pipeline as well, and it's much more efficient and would give us the stability that we need in the energy sector, which our state is highly reliant on. But because there's some division in the state of South Dakota over it, you know, it was a little bit 
risky too. And also I had watched the fights that we'd had over the build in North Dakota, if you remember that newt, the DAPL pipeline that cost the state of South Dakota hundreds of millions of dollars in North Dakota with law enforcement costs and, and what those protests did. When I first got elected as governor, I brought forward two bills that would give us the opportunity in the state to assess the pipeline company for those costs and save our taxpayers the court costs, the law enforcement costs, and the safety costs that North Dakota had to deal with. So even just me, as soon as I became governor, bringing forward those two bills that saved the state of South Dakota potentially hundreds of millions of dollars by having the pipeline company pay those costs if they were to build it through the state, which you know, TransCanada supported, TC Energy supported my bills because they recognized that they had a governor that would partner with them to build a pipeline safely and make sure that any violent protests that broke out would be adequately taken care of. So I was in this fight for years, even when I was in Congress, but then proactively trying to protect taxpayers from any costs with building pipelines to make sure that we had some certainty in our energy sector. So as I understand it, this is clearly not a topic where I'm an expert, but the actual result, if you don't build the pipeline, and you end up shipping the oil by rail and by truck, is you actually increase the risk of spills, and you raise the price, and you actually increase total pollution. That is correct. Yes. There's a much greater chance of spills. There's a much greater chance of accidents. Many of these rail lines and roads go through small towns, and we've had incidences in the past where they've had accidents that have been extremely dangerous for the people that live there. And it costs much more, obviously, and it's a wear and tear on our roads and bridges. So to put it through the pipeline not only protected costs and made us more efficient, it also protected our environment and it protected the people that live here. What President Biden did on day one by canceling those permits was the wrong decision on every level, the wrong decision on policy, energy, environment, and safety. I'm curious. What do you think motivates people to be in favor of a policy? I mean, I've always thought that some of the people who opposed the pipeline actually had interest in trucks and railroads. That's possible, though they haven't been the vocal opponents. For us, it's our Native American tribes, and they have opposed it based on Mother Earth and protecting their land and water. But all of the research and data and facts around it show that it obviously would be safer to have it in the pipeline than it would, especially with the new technologies that come out now with these pipelines and the way that they're built. They're just incredibly advanced in how they put in protection systems to stop spills almost immediately. But beyond that, those that are opposed, I think, are those that honestly are just opposed to the oil and gas industry. They would be those on the left that say they're for items and policies like the Green New Deal. And that's just not workable for the average everyday family, especially in a state like South Dakota, where it is incredibly cold in the winter, it is incredibly hot in the summer, and it is a long ways to drive anywhere. So we are heavily energy dependent, and the reality for most people here in South Dakota is that they need pipelines like this to make their way of life something that they can enjoy and keep more dollars in their pockets. Are you beginning to see gasoline prices go up? Yes, our gasoline prices since President Biden's been in office have gone up about 30%. I just wrote a column that 
Yeah, this is sort of the hidden Biden tax. And when he tells you it's only going to hit people above $400,000, you ought to go to your local gas station and watch who's filling up their car. In effect, his policies are leading them to pay the hidden tax of inflation. Well, and for us too, Newt, we've got some big populated areas of South Dakota, but much of our state, it's 30 miles to go to the grocery store. You know, people drive 40 miles to go to work every day. So, you know, until there's a real option for those individuals, it is just direct money that they have to spend just to take care of their families. And those are the people that aren't making a lot of money anyways. And it's literally going to be a decision between whether to fill their gas tank up or to be able to go out to eat once a week or buy their kids those new shoes that they need to play basketball. That's the decisions that are happening and it's directly hurting those middle class families, lower income families that you know are going to struggle in that kind of an environment. When I was a child, my dad was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas. And coming out of the heavily populated East, the idea that somebody might go 50 miles for a Friday night dinner. Just, you know, took a little bit of adjusting. That's right. Well, and we need to remember that there's value to having us here. We grow your food. We are the backbone of this country that gets up every day and makes sure that people have a beautiful place to come visit, but also that they were putting food on your table and building the manufacturing and products that show up on your store shelves. And that's what we need in order for our country to be stable and to have a stable economy is to have every single part of it be producing and thriving. I tell folks all the time that when you put all your eggs in one basket in a couple of parts of the country is when you get instability. And through the 2008 housing crisis and some of the recessions that we've seen, it's been middle America, it's been the Midwest that has stabilized the national economy when so many of the other areas were struggling. And it was because of our conservative government and decision-making that kept our economy going better than it did in so many of those other blue states. You know, one of the most interesting side stories that has developed out of the Biden administration, where you were right in the middle of it, and I think it really drew attention to you, was this decision by the National Park Service to block you from holding a July 4th fireworks celebration at Mount Rushmore. Do you have any idea what their thinking is, other than they're just nuts? Well, I think they specifically blocked us from holding that celebration to be punitive and to be political. You know, we for years hosted fireworks at Mount Rushmore on July 3rd, the night before July 4th, so that when everybody woke up on Independence Day, on all their TV screens, on all of their media outlets, they could see us celebrating our founding fathers on that monument in South Dakota and being proud of being American. We did that for many years, but we lost those fireworks when President Obama came into office. He took away our ability to host them. So one of the things that I asked President Trump, even before I was sworn in as governor, was to help me get back our fireworks celebration. It was our opportunity to showcase South Dakota, showcase Mount Rushmore, and to really be patriots and celebrate independence. President Trump became extremely dedicated to helping me do that, and we did, and I think most everybody in the country had an opportunity to see part of that celebration last year. When we had agreed to do that celebration, we had signed memorandums of agreement 
to continue hosting that celebration every single year. We went through the environmental permitting processes. We had agreements with Forest Service, National Park Service, Wildland Fire on a go, no-go checklist to deal with potential fire hazards. We had local leaders sign on for facilitating getting in and out. And we had gone through every single logistical negotiation and gotten that done so these celebrations could continue to happen. But when President Biden came into office and denied us our permits that we were to be allocated according to that agreement, there was no reason given. And I guess that's my biggest problem is that if he would have cited environmental concerns, if he would have cited fire dangers, you know, even public health issues, which last year we hosted it during the pandemic and did not have an event that spread the virus. We allowed people to come and to be a part of it. So that was the thing that is challenging for me is that President Biden took it away with no reason other than, we believe, just to be political and to not celebrate America. I read yesterday that the Defense Department has refused to issue a permit to Rolling Thunder, which is the annual Memorial Day weekend. People arrive on motorcycles in huge numbers and really in celebration of our wounded veterans and as a very, very pro-American thing. All of a sudden, I found out that they had blocked it from using the Pentagon parking lot, which is empty on Memorial Day weekend. And it just struck me that very parallel to what you're experiencing, they go out of their way to avoid celebrating America. They do. And I had not heard that. That makes me sad because our country needs to unify at this point in time. We need an opportunity to come together and be proud of our background, our history, and talk about it. It's through events like this that our kids see it on TV, they hear about it in the news, and then we have conversations that educate them on why they're still free and why they have liberties that have been defended and fought for and protected for so many years. So that's what is the sad consequence of, of this is that, you know, I'm obviously suing the Biden administration to get my fireworks back. But what's interesting is President Biden was the one himself who stood up on national TV and said, we could celebrate our freedom from this virus by Independence Day. So he declared that himself, that by the time we get to July 4th, we should be celebrating our independence from the virus. What better way than to do that at Mount Rushmore, celebrating our America's independence and freedom and birthday. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. 
and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So this whole notion of not celebrating America, the whole effort by the left to rewrite American history, something which you wrote uh, an op-ed on Fox News with Secretary Ben Carson, and you signed the 1776 pledge to save our schools. Tell me your thinking about all this and how you hope it will develop, not just in South Dakota, but also around the country. Well, it's kind of a longer story than probably what we've seen over the last year develop. But when I first was sworn in as governor, so almost three years ago, I brought a bill to my legislature and asked them to put more civics and history into our curriculum to teach more of America's background. It was killed by Republicans. My Republican legislature defeated that, saying it wasn't necessary. And I started to realize that people didn't necessarily know how important it was to focus on teaching our children that background and give them that kind of insight into our true patriotic background. When I got into the COVID-19 pandemic and started to make decisions, it was very much based on, you know, what authority I had as a governor and what authority I didn't have as a governor. I took my oath to the state constitution, the U.S. Constitution, seriously. I didn't just consult with my health professionals and researchers. I also consulted with my general counsel and constitutional attorneys to find out exactly what a governor's role is and what a governor's role isn't. So I made my decisions based off of that. And it was all based on that foundation of our country because Newt, I just believe that when a governor oversteps their authority in a time of crisis or when a leader does, that that's really when you break America. So, you know, I made those decisions, but we also watched the riots happen across the country last year. We watched protests. We watched people give up their freedoms, their freedom of assembly. They let the government tell them they had to shelter in place. They lost their freedom of religion. 
They let the government tell them they couldn't go to church. They lost their freedom of speech by what we saw happening with our social media giants that control the narrative out there. And I realized I couldn't just talk about the decisions that I was making in South Dakota anymore, which were different than any other governor in the country was making, that I needed to tell people why I was making the decisions that I made. So some of those press conferences that I held in the middle of the pandemic, in the middle of the summer last year, were just about freedom and about our Constitution and educating people as to what the Constitution said my role was and why I was making the decisions not to shut down our state, not to close any businesses, not to even define what an essential business was, because I, as a governor, didn't have the authority to tell you your business wasn't essential. And that was something that, as I went on and on and on, I became more and more alarmed as to how ignorant people really were to the background and history that is the truth about America. So that's why I was the first governor this week in the country to sign on to the 1776 pledge that says in our school systems, we need an honest accounting for our history. We need our true history to be taught and that we have to push back on critical race theory on the 1619 project. We need to point out how they are absolutely pushing lies to our children about what America is about and that we need to make sure that that is a priority for us and that I'll continue to do that because in this day and age, leaders can't just be making decisions. They need to take on the responsibility of really educating people as to what our true history is and why it's still important today and into the future. So, I mean, I think this is really important. It was interesting in Ronald Reagan's farewell address. He said, after going through the great things they had achieved, he said the greatest failure was turning around the teaching of American history mm-hmm. and that it worried him more than any other single thing that they had failed to get done. So in a sense, you have picked up the torch for something that President Reagan felt was at the heart of what threatened us as a country because it literally is an anti-American movement to change things and to change things in ways that are, I think, very unacceptable to most people. You may know that last Saturday in Texas, there was a local community which had a vote on this topic, and 71% voted to elect a school board that was committed to the same policies that you are. And I thought it was very interesting that I mean, 71% begins to be a pretty good vote. And I think it shocked some of the people in the news media to realize that maybe their view is not all that popular out there in the country at large. Let me give you a chance to explain. The only thing that people have said that I think has confused or blurred what is otherwise so far an extraordinary performance by you as governor, as congresswoman, and as an emerging truly national leader. And that's this whole issue about protecting women's sports, because at best it seems kind of muddled with the legislature passing something. I think you vetoed it, but then you issued an executive order. I just want to give you a minute or two to sort of explain to the folks what the state of play was, what's happening. And because as I listened to you the other night at Mar-a-Lago, I had a feeling like there's a different story than the one the news media may have carried. Yes, and you're exactly right. I have always fought for only girls to play in girls' sports. In fact, years ago, the federal government came out to the state of South Dakota and told the sport of rodeo that they could no longer have girls' events and boys' events, that they had to be open to everybody. And I was in Congress at the time, 
And I went to war to protect the girls' events and the boys' events and to push back on the federal government. I remember during that time, it was incredibly lonely because no other member of Congress would help, none of my delegation, and not even the governor at the time. But I partnered with the Sport of Rodeo to push back and with Sonny Perdue's help at USDA, was able to get them to reverse course so that rodeo could always continue the way that it has and have girls' events and boys' events. So that's one of the reasons, Newt, I think I was so shocked by how the story got told in the national media because I have a long history on this issue and a very public fight with the federal government to ensure we were protecting girls' sports. But my legislature passed me a a bill during the legislative session that would have ensured that in the K-12 system and collegiate system that girls only played girls sports, but it also had a lot of other elements to it. It opened up an opportunity for every child who played sports to sue other children on that team if they didn't make it. On the team, it allowed them to sue the school district if they were not chosen to be a part of the team, and it allowed them to sue for emotional damages with no cap, and then the enforcement actions were extremely flawed. And so what I asked my legislature to do was to change it. I did not veto the bill. What I did is I sent it to the legislature and said, fix this bill and I will sign it. Unfortunately, my legislature did not accept the changes and the bill died. The story that got told in the national media was that I vetoed it, which absolutely wasn't true. So what I did after the legislature did not accept the changes was I put two executive orders in place that said only girls will play in girls sports in my public schools and then also only girls will play in girls sports at the collegiate level. And those executive orders will stand until my legislature passes bills that can be signed into law. But what happened in the press and with conservatives is that they read a headline They didn't read the bill. They didn't see the bill that my legislature sent me, which was unlike any other bill in the country. There was no other bill that passed through any other state that had the flaws in it that mine did. And I just believe that it's not my job to sign bad bills that have a lot of other unintended consequences, and it's my job to fix them, which is what I did when I asked the legislature to change it. I wish they would have accepted it, but in the meantime, these executive orders will stand until we get a bill that I can sign into law. That's really, really helpful. I have to ask you, when you were back there, I assume you were competing in rodeo. Yes, I grew up competing in rodeo. I was a rodeo coach. My kids rodeoed as well. It's a very big part of our life here in South Dakota. It is our sport. Which events did you compete in? I did barrels, poles, and goat tying. So those were the ones that I spent all my time competing in. Were you a champion goat tire? <laughs> I was pretty pretty quick, but I don't know if I was the champion. Those goats are pretty wily. I'm just thinking about if some people's hopes for you pan out. It's a little bit like Honest Abe splitting the logs. I mean, I have this image of you <laughs> tying goats and saying, I think I can master the Congress. That's right. You know, I think of most of our family stories and memories are of either cattle, livestock, or these rodeo events. You know, me and my girls would travel from rodeo to rodeo each weekend. We'd sleep in our trailer, and it's a tough, dirty way of life, but so special. We have so many memories. Did you go down to Cheyenne? 
Yes, I've been there before, but I need to get back there. Cynthia keeps inviting me. As I understand it, that's just an amazing center. Well, and the history around that rodeo is incredible. It was so sad for me to even see a lot of rodeos get canceled this last year because of COVID, because they're outdoors and these people wanted to have their sporting event. I think it was also amazing to me to watch rodeo champion America. If you watched a rodeo this year, they are such patriotic Americans that love this country that a lot of folks who couldn't stand to watch the NFL for the agenda they were pushing, Major League Baseball for what they were pushing, rodeo would never do anything like that. They love this country and any chance they get to tell its story, they will. And I suspect in terms of the threat of COVID, if you're willing to get out there in the arena with a bull, probably you don't regard risk-taking <laughs> quite the same as if you're sitting in a high-rise in New York City. That's exactly true. They're tough people. Yes, well, well, listen, you are a terrific leader. You have a very big future, and you're also a good sport. And I really appreciate the way you've talked candidly and openly about things, and I wish you well, and I think all of us are going to be hearing a great deal more from you. Well, let's visit again soon, Newt. I enjoyed it, and, and I would love to chat with folks, especially when it comes to this education process that we need to have with our kids. And honestly, there's a lot of adults that don't understand the importance of protecting our Constitution and our freedoms and what our history means to us. There's an enormous vacuum right now for somebody to fill to help citizens understand what their rights are and what they can do to change the schools and what they can do to make sure their children learn patriotic and accurate history. I have a hunch that we're going to be seeing you around the country. Yes. Let me tell you, Newt, everything you're seeing in South Dakota that's successful right now is because I adhered to the history and the perspective that our founding fathers gave us. We are the fastest growing economy, the lowest unemployment in the nation. We have thousands of people moving to our state and we have historic revenues coming in. And it's all because we adhere to conservative principles as defined by our founding fathers that were given to us at the beginning of this country. And that's the testimony people should use to really blueprint out how their way of life should be protected. That's great. Listen, thank you very, very much. You bet. Thanks, Newt. Thank you to my guest, Governor Christy Nome. You can read more about the topics we discussed in this episode on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball. From Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 